joy of learning. Learning is fun. And if it isn't fun, find a class where it is fun. Welcome to Teach, Talk, Listen, Learn, a podcast featuring conversations all about teaching and learning from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. I'm Bob Dignan, and in every episode, I'll be joined by colleagues, faculty, and instructors from across our campus to talk teaching. Today we have... I'm Dee Dee Fairchild-Ruggles. I'm a professor in the Department of Landscape Architecture, and I am a historian of the architecture and landscape history, primarily of the Islamic world, South Asia, and Mediterranean. Ava Wolf from the Center for Innovation in Teaching and Learning. This recording just felt different than the others we've done so far on the show. I'm really glad Dee Dee agreed to be on and let the conversation take on a life of its own. Um, I hope you enjoy some time thinking through some common strengths and even misunderstandings about history education and even some prudent advice to undergrads and grads in any field. Can you describe some of the courses that you teach to give us some context into the various teaching strategies that you've used and some of the observations that we've been talking uh, beforehand about you noticing trends in students and, and how you're addressing the topics that you're teaching? So I teach all levels. I teach an undergraduate introductory course, a very large scale. I also teach uh, graduate seminars at the master's level. And in my department, that would be a professional program. So they're going out to become landscape architects and architects. Mm -hmm. And then also at the PhD level, where of course they are training to become, you know, like me, a professor or something like that. So all levels. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I teach primarily history courses and theory courses. So my undergraduate course is an introduction to the history of the Islamic architecture and landscape, which is an odd topic, but it's also at the same time an introduction into how to understand the built environment more um, you know, on a larger scale, mm. how, to, how to read the environment, how to understand the ways that we study the environment. The PhD courses tend to be less about uh, specific moments in history and more about how we practice history as historians, how we engage with theory and how it changes the way we might understand theory or understand uh, human behavior. Do you get to do any site visits during some of this? Or? <laughs> well, it's the Islamic world, so it's kind of far away. Yeah, uh, that's say. what we use, you know, slides and film for. Um, it would be nice. We once we took a group of students abroad for a studio, um, and that was wonderful. But it's it's hard to do that. Mm. It's quite far away. I take them to the local mosque, okay. uh, where the you know the challenge is to see in that mosque some of the characteristics that we have learned about historically from other parts of the world, because they're there, you know, little quotes from Islamic Spain or Turkey. Or, mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, I'm picking up some of your, especially your undergraduate material, is transporting students both place and time in a lot of respects. It, it is. I mean, I, I used to, <laughs> one of the best projects I ever gave them, I don't do it anymore because I do other good projects, but one of the best projects I ever gave them was to have them write throughout the semester, it was called the passport, where they had to write a travel diary of traveling through mm -hmm. history to look at the Great Mosque of Cordoba, the Alhambra, the Top Kappa, the Taj, whatever. They got to choose the buildings that they and sites that they studied. But they had to tell me what they ate. They had to tell me who went with them. They had to tell me how they got there. They were all time travelers. So usually they were like rubbing a magic lamp or something like that. <laughs> a few of them took a powder, you know, something out of a pill. I was like, oh, I know, this is G-rated. We don't do that. Um, 
But uh, yeah, and it so it, it kind of asks them to personalize, right? Everything is objective. I'm teaching it to them. They're the sort of recipients of it. But it was asking them to own it and then, you know, turn it into a story of their own making where they become a character in the story. You know, most of them wanted to be crusaders or, you know, knights of some kind. Uh, they have vivid imaginations. But um, it was a way of getting them to internalize and think of it as something that they were experiencing mm -hmm. as opposed to something that I was had experienced and was transmitting to them. <laughs> and they loved that project. That was so much fun. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm hearing you, I heard you use the word story, and I just think that's such a, an important part. What is history if it's not storytelling, yeah, right? I wonder has, how you, if you can elaborate on that. Yeah, it has the word story in it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think of history as a series of stories that we tell in which we give meaning to a place and time that we are not part of. You know, even my heritage students who may come from the part of the world that we're studying, um, even those students, they don't know the history of those places, you know. And so for everyone, it is a journey through time and in some cases through space to see other parts of the world. Uh, and but for it to work as a story, it has to have some kind of meaning. It can't just be a description. I mean, no story you know, follows a, a kind of this, then this, then this, then this. No, it's there's this problem that we need to solve and the story is going to be the solution to the problem. Mm -hmm. So you have to start with, uh, it's not really a problem so much as, you know, a question. Yeah. Like why, when, where, you know, what does it matter? Why did it occur? Um, how did it happen? Yeah, those kind of questions are really uh, important because I think we are hardwired to want to know the answers to them. So mm -hmm. when you ask a question, people will hang around as long as it takes to hear the answer for it. Even if it's something as silly as, you know, why did the chicken cross the road? I mean, nobody really cares why the chicken crossed the road. Nobody cares. And yet we wait with our mouths open. I don't know, how did the kitchen, you know, why did the chicken cross the road? And history is like that. I mean, they don't know the world that I'm describing. They don't, they've never been to, you know, 10th century Spain or, or, you know, 11th century Cairo. It doesn't really mean anything to them except by telling it in the form of a story, it becomes something that they really want to hear. You're like, what happened next? You know, why did that happen? What was the, what was the consequence of that? You know, when that happened, well, then what did they do? You know, you try and make it uh, come alive in that way. You know? So how does this play out in, in, say, that undergraduate course? Are you starting lecture with a question or a topic with... Yeah, we start, I start every year, I teach it year after year, I love this course. Uh, I start every year with the question, first of all, I say architecture is a form of communication. And then I say the question for us is to understand what's being communicated and how that communication works. Because we're very used to language as communication, uh, less used to pictures mm -hmm. as communication, mm -hmm. and really not very used to architecture and space as a form of communication. But that, that is what they learn in this course. They think they're learning about Islamic buildings. In fact, nobody in Urbana-Champaign really needs to know about the Great <laughs> Mosque of Cordoba. They can live a perfectly good life without knowing that. But what they do need to know is how architecture shapes human society. You know, questions of justice, questions of safety, questions of beauty and elation, you know, things that make you kind of go, oh, that's an architectural experience. And it is a communication of ideas about beauty, ideas about safety, ideas about justice, who gets access 
to this space? Who doesn't get access? Do we acknowledge that access or do we pretend that everyone has access, but in fact they don't? You can see how that applies to contemporary life in the United States. Which neighborhoods belong to which groups of people? Which bars belong to which groups of people? We don't necessarily acknowledge it, but that space is shaping human relations. So this is what we're doing by going to this other time and place. We're kind of looking at it without having that much personal investment in it, because after all, we're not there. Mm -hmm. uh, but it allows us to understand how those things work. And hopefully they're then able to understand it when they encounter it in their own lives. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of taking this in to think, I wonder if partway through the course you would acknowledge a student is getting it if they start answering your questions with other questions that are like linked, <laughs> like they, the questions are begetting other questions in a sense. Yeah, it, it is a course, you know, this year it had 120 students. So mm. the ability, their ability to speak back is somewhat limited, mm. sadly. That is much more likely to occur in a graduate seminar. Uh, or a class of, let's say, less than 20, where you really, you know, that's really framed as a conversation, where the role of me as the teacher is not to kind of provide this storytelling experience where I'm the narrator, but really to, and then I teach them that it is a dialogue, where th when they read the text that I have assigned, they are engaging in a dialogue. They are now listening to someone speak to them. The person may no longer be alive. They're certainly not in the room with us, but they are speaking and we are listening. And our job then is to answer back. What do we say in response? When someone speaks to you, you generally don't walk away. That would be very rude. <laughs> when someone speaks to you, you generally talk back. And that's what the graduate seminar is all about. It's learning how to talk back, you know, in a productive way by asking, well, what did you mean by that? Right? That's what we do when we read a really difficult text. We ask the author, what did you mean by that? I don't fully understand it. Or when you said that, were you thinking of this other text? Were you in a conversation with another great thinker? Mm. So trying to think of it as, you know, in almost social terms, really, you know, a kind of social intellectual exchange. I think it makes it easier for them. Otherwise, if they treat it, I'm really talking about graduate students now, if they treat it as just a dead inert text, Mm. You might as well just hit yourself on the head with it for the amount of impact <laughs> it's going to, you know, it, just, it doesn't sink in. Sure. Yeah. You have to think of it as a live person who's talking to you. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. A living story. A living story. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Uh, another thing that we discussed that relates to uh, what you're beginning into about, um, about examining uh, going back that time traveling, mm. you've, you talked about primary sources yeah. and you discovered a need of compiling your yeah. own set of primary sources. So I wonder if you could, could describe that yeah. briefly and then we could go into what that uh, was you know, fully motivated by. Yeah. So one of the things about the stories that we work on is that they are not fictional. Mm -hmm. It's not about what you believe or what you want to see in the past, although to some degree we are all driven by that, you know, admittedly, but teaching them how to accurately read using, and, and, and again, as readers, we all read differently, acknowledging that we're all subjective in the way that we read. Um, so it's not like it's the same story for everyone. But when we read in the past, we are reading evidence, whether it is material uh -huh. evidence, the building itself, textual evidence, what people wrote about that building, um, other forms of graphic evidence, which might be a building plan or you know a sketch made of it. Um, that, that is a lost skill to some degree. Uh, I think 
when we examining you know, evidence examining evidence well we know that primary, in the contemporary yeah, primary evidence, primary evidence. Mm -hmm. in the contemporary climate we know that people have a hard time uh, in the media environment distinguishing between what one person said and what another person said it all looks the same and it's mm -hmm. because they don't really understand who's using evidence and who's just speaking you know lies or speaking you know belief right belief and and evidence very different things well we were talking about the value of the primary sources and how to get students engaged in them is it hard to get them connected to its students or used to i think especially in your undergraduate class information is so instant and yes. uh, and and not necessarily reliable as we look right. at there you know you're talking about things as evidence um, they're talking about Instagram. So how, how do you reckon with that? Right, it all looks very flat from their perspective. Mm -hmm. um, yes, so teaching them to be critical in their, in the way that they listen to those voices from the past and, and the present, you know, because I'm also speaking in the present, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm True. a contemporary True. voice. Mm -hmm. um, but teaching them also to understand that what we know of the past is fragmentary mm. and that we have to be able to assess those fragments mm -hmm. and put them together. Yeah. Uh, it can be very hard to read primary sources. And you know, one of the things I did for this undergraduate class was to write a anthology. It's a published anthology of primary sources translated from Persian, Arabic, Turkish, and a few other languages. Wow. I didn't do all the translation. Um, I did some, but not all. Uh, and to start off with a discussion of what a primary source is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that they understand that. Yeah. And then to understand that arguments, a good argument, and this is undergrads and grads have to learn this, a good argument starts off by saying, okay, I have this tray or this platter, and on it I have these, you know, these pieces of evidence, how do I put them together right. in a way that makes kind of coherent sense of that time and place as best as I can, knowing that we may get more evidence and our interpretation will change. Or we, someone may come along and read them differently and say, actually, I think the evidence leads to a slightly different conclusion. Um, but getting them to understand that it's not just out of nowhere that mm -hmm. we know the past. The past doesn't come to us and knock on our door and say, hey, here I am. I'm all ready to be, you know, studied. Digested. Right. It's, it's a detective work. Mm. You also mentioned helping them to learn to quote effectively and to use these resources effectively in their writing and their further investigations. Mm. Well, that's a challenge I think every teacher experiences, which is when everything looks the same, it can be very hard for, particularly for undergrads, but also for grads, mm to understand that when you use someone else's words or voice, mm -hmm. you have to credit them yeah. by putting it in quotations, by putting a footnote saying, this is where I got it from. And that's a lost art because, you know, we're in the age of the, of the meme and the, right. the Twitter, you know, things that get repeated and repeated and, and supposedly gain value. Certainly they gain impact. I don't know about value, uh, but, it's, it's a challenge to teach them that. And it's also, uh, it has some cultural inflection too, where different scholarly environments are more or less likely to quote, hmm. you know, formally quote. Mm -hmm. It's also true that different academic environments 
have different expectations about originality yeah. at all. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the things that can be a challenge with new graduate students is teaching them to to be to push back. You know, when they read a text, push back. Right? Mm -hmm. What do you disagree mm -hmm. with? What do you not just what do you not understand? Like somehow, if you understood it, you would accept it fully. But what do you disagree with? What do you think does not hold in the argument? You know, where does this clash against other things that you've read? And you know, we sometimes call that critical reading, but it's being an active reader. It's sure. just being an active reader. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be hard for them to learn to do that. Mm -hmm. So that's one where you think, I have no role. I'm just the recipient of what these great thinkers are thinking. And my role is to become, I'm like a bucket and I just gather it in. That's Unfortunately, that's not enough, right? Yeah. We are not just mm -hmm. buckets that gather in our accumulation of other people's thought. We are generators of new thought. And that requires, you know, an, a, a willingness to push back. But it also requires this is the sort of subtle part of it. It requires an understanding and an admission of what are my ideas? What are your ideas? Mm -hmm. uh, where did you get your ideas from? In other words, you have to understand that there's a genealogy right. in which you figure in the genealogy. Right. It's not a genealogy happening out there. As the reader, right. you are a part of that genealogy. You yes. have just received and you are now a transmitter, if you want, right. of those ideas. From awareness, I, 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 I think yeah. that's a, yeah. a from awareness. I think is a is a term that I I use sometimes. A t, an old T. S. Eliot hmm. uh, poem, but something to do with our from awareness, yeah. knowing knowing and yeah. recognizing. It's a wonderful that. term for mm -hmm. it. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm just wrapping my head around. Earlier, you were describing things as flat. And I think I understand that term better now that you're describing this. It, it even relates to something I work in where if you're in Photoshop and you have the layers available to you, you can yes, edit all so the layers sure and you know what they're called and yeah. where they are layered. But yeah. if you render it out as a JPEG, it is now it all flat. It's out. all one layer exactly. and you can't edit as well anymore and you lose a lot of context and history and hidden layers and things like that are now gone. And the right. original, right? What was right. the thing that prompted this to begin with? That first foundation layer, you lose that. Mm. It just looks exactly like the thing you added two minutes ago. Mm. Yeah. I but also you, work in You mentioned stuff. meme culture and so it's interesting that may, there might be energy to apply to this, but, but it's all taken up maybe in those spheres where it's like to understand that this started here and then it got modified here and then added to this and so mm -hmm. I somehow know the context that this clip went to this and then added that goat noise and now it's that. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like a lot of energy to yeah. keep in my mind. I can't keep it all straight, yeah. it's but, true. but a lot of people can. And yeah. uh, I wonder if maybe you just redirect the energy to maybe to, you said, more valuable. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we don't have to do it all the time. It's not like sure. we walk around constantly engaging in critical analysis. I mean, no, I hear a song. I hum a song. I don't say, well, that song was, you know, my husband does this, but that song was 1962 and it was, you know. <laughs> yeah. the, uh, they're borrowing you know. the riff from so-and-so. Yeah, I, I actually do that a lot. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, people who are good at that do it, but, but I treat music very flatly that way, mm -hmm. right? But sure. as scholars, we don't. Mm -hmm. We can't. That's not our job. Our job is to right. understand, delaminate all those layers and understand, you know, who did what, when, and, and then to acknowledge that we play a role as a layer. In yeah. our reading, yeah, yeah, because yeah. what's the alternative? You know, deep fakes, fake, fake, exactly. Fake stories. That's what it, um, this is know, the political this, this relevancy is what worries me. of this. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. This is why I say you don't have to know. You know, the what I have to teach you about the Taj Mahal, you can live without it. What you cannot live without is an understanding of how history is made and what our role is as 
you know, all of us as historians, that we are the living recipients, again, through these primary sources and other forms of, you know, evidence, um, that, that we are engaged in it. We're active participants in it. One of the things I also did in my undergraduate course was not simply to have them read texts, because, you know, all texts seem alike to them, mm. but to interview the authors of those texts. Oh. Uh. So they saw ideas being made. Oh, that's They don't often get to see that. These are very short. I did maybe three of them, uh, less than 10 minutes, in which they read, you know, a piece about the minaret and how the minaret begins. And the guy who wrote the book on the minaret I interview him, mm -hmm. and he tells me where he got the idea. He was a graduate student, and why he thought the book was important, and what the impact was, and mm -hmm. who read it, and how it got, you know, pushed into a second edition. All that kind of stuff. Ten minutes. So they also get to see, oh, this is a living person, this mm -hmm. guy. Mm -hmm. You know, this person lives and breathes. This is what he sounds like. So to teach them that those authoritative voices belong to people, yeah. you know, to make them, again, back to that subjectivity again. Right? The, yeah. the forward and the about the author and everything, they're in the book for a reason. They're, they're there to humanize that author, mm. yeah. But mm. they got to see, you know, and also they got to see me talking. So they got to see us. It wasn't the author standing there saying, okay, here's what you need to know about the minaret. It was us talking back and forth, Dialogue. me asking mm -hmm. questions, back to questions again. Right. And the author saying, oh, well, the answer to that is mm -hmm. I did it this way. You know, it was, it was, uh, they got to see it in action. Mm -hmm. But we are they also creating them. history too. Yeah. So there's a, there's, there's a certain element of that that has to come through. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. If that guy had not written the book about minarets, we would tell a very different story about That's what right. the purpose and you know very mm -hmm. earliest minarets were all about. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah, he changes the way we think about history. He and all the other people who I interviewed and all the other authors who we yeah. rely on. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So I was just thinking, trying to put myself in the shoes of, say, an engineer, an uh, engineering teacher, someone mm -hmm. who's teaching engineering, mm -hmm. and um, trying to pick apart kind of what would be uh, applicable to, to them and their discipline. And I think what we've been touching on is, is actually very relevant in terms mm -hmm. of the history of oh, sure. of these um, of these disciplines and what goes into them and what um, assumptions and what they're predicated on because you know sometimes the best idea actually hasn't been discovered yet in terms of an engineering feat and it's all because we've been going off of the principles that so and so set up that it was established on the principles of somebody before them and you know being able to interrogate those a little bit would be extremely valuable. I would, I would say that sometimes the brilliant idea is already out there, mm -hmm. but people haven't yet begun to listen to it. Uh, oh. They yeah. don't understand it yet. Right. And it can take a while for a great idea to take hold. Huh. It can take 20 years. And that's especially true in the sciences, where you know a scientist yeah. publishes something that overturns what is regarded as standard knowledge. It's not like everybody says, oh, okay, we're gonna get rid of that thing that we predicated oh, all our sure. work on, yeah. and we're gonna accept your new version of, of, of science. It rarely works that way. Hmm. Usually it's, you must be wrong. You know, Everything we've ever studied led mm -hmm. to a different conclusion. Hence so, the structure, the, what is it called? The structure of scientific revolutions. Exactly. Remember Tom, exactly. Thomas Kuhn. Exactly, Thomas yeah. Kuhn. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. And you can see it, you know, you, if, you, yeah. if you're a scholar long enough, you, you see it in action. So what you can say from that is that there is a historical context to it. Mm -hmm. And again, there is, you know, if you think about questions, 
you know, yeah. someone who's questioning what was accepted as fact and then says, well, no, actually, it's slightly different. Mm-hmm. So, so given all these topics, I, I wonder if uh, we could have you touch on two areas. Um, what advice would you give um, students of some of some of the disciplines that that you're involved with? Uh, Graduate students, you mean, or well, I think that is probably appropriate to break it into two because you've talked about yeah, you know it seems like when you talked about communication through story and place that in the undergraduate level you're modeling a lot of the communication that you would that that would be had at the upper levels and in the upper levels you're you're putting them in there and you're saying okay let's start having this this Mm -hmm. dialogue Mm -hmm. um so so what advice would you give undergrads and and then maybe we can move to to grads well undergrads you know we're we're in a time when more and more they treat undergraduate education as a kind of economic system mm. where you know they're very concerned about their points right. about their mm. grades mm-hmm. and they translate what should be an elevating and thrilling mm-hmm. experience of aha moments into these points and you know nothing could right. be flatter than a point system right. and i get it you know points do you know i keep track of how many steps I take every day. It gets me to take more. It's a point <laughs> system, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, I guess I would, I would just urge students to pay more attention to what they love about learning mm-hmm. and not let the university push them towards this economy where where what matters is getting the A. No, what matters is, did you like the course? Right, knowledge for knowledge's sake. Yeah, yeah. just mm-hmm. this is this wonderful mm-hmm. opportunity. And people, you know, 10 years later will all yep. say to us, for example, when they come back for reunions or when we see them, you know, at alumni events, they'll all say, oh, I, I wish I had taken more of X. Yep. I wish I'd taken more, often they say more history, because I teach a lot of designers, and a lot of the designers think, oh, I really have to become a really good designer. I have to learn all this software, and I have to know how to do all these different things so I can go out there and get a job. And then 10 years later, it's like, oh, I wish I had taken more history courses. Right. You know? <laughs> Not because it's useful, but because they actually really liked it, but didn't think that it was going to help translate them. into points. Mm. Yeah. That, yeah. You know, the point so system of getting true. a job. Mm. So that's what I would say to undergrads is, you know, just... You know, give into the joy of learning. Learning yeah. is fun. And if it isn't fun, find a class where it is fun, mm. you know? So true. Uh, yeah. that, that's a good admonition to mm-hmm. keep searching because yeah. I mean, yeah. in, a, in a place as big as ours or in the institution of higher ed, I mean, you're bound yeah. to find a bit of it's not fun here. So yeah. keep looking. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't if you, yeah. I mean, I think I, I am not a, a, an expert on um, the science of pedagogy, but my understanding is that when people don't like something, they actually can't learn it very thoroughly. <laughs> you really have to like it for yeah. it to stick. Right. Yeah. So, so true. Yeah. And so. then at the graduate level, but which see, you spend... I think they discredit that. I don't think they understand that liking it is part of it. Mm. That's yeah. what it is about. Right. Mm. Almost like they don't feel like they have permission yeah. to to. Yeah, uh, not so much. Not they don't have permission to like it, but that they 
they're kind of missing the point about yeah. what what they're doing here. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. yeah. They think they're getting a job, and no, they're, they're, it's all about getting a job. Yeah, right. and they are. I mean, I I, I want them to get jobs. Job is right? good. I want them. That's good. <laughs> but the best way to get a job is to be a really thoughtful person. Right, right. And I've always believed in a general liberal them. education. The value yeah. of a general LAS. liberal education. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I think it's. Yeah. <laughs> I, I quite agree yeah. that uh, we we really don't want to be a trade school. We we really want to appreciate and value of general liberal education. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a really practical reason for that, which is that the skills, the, the, just the skills, right? Like I, backtrack, I learned AutoCAD, I think it was version 11, which was like in the dark age, right? <laughs> you, it doesn't exist anymore. Sure. And it was a skill that doesn't carry forward. But what I also learned right. was how to read images. Yeah. That carries forward. That's a critical ability. So I keep telling them, yeah, learn the skills. You need the skills. But understand that the skills are going to evaporate in five years. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to learn a whole new set. And really what you want to do is learn how to learn skills. Oh, so yeah. true. Learn how to um, distinguish between a skill that does this versus a skill that does that. So you can use them in a complementary manner. You know, learn I think that's yeah. absolutely true. I mean, I used press type, okay? And, you know, <laughs> right. but, and of course, nobody's really using press type. Even I stopped using press type when digital stuff came yeah. around. But what I learned was placement of text, mm -hmm. an eye for text, mm -hmm. what text, could, how text could be used effectively on them. All yeah. of that was from the manipulating of type mm. in ways to create a message. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So do you have a layer for um, the graduate students that you work with? Or maybe not just yours, but in general? The graduate students, I do. I, I you know, I so let me just describe one course that I teach because it kind of summarizes where I am with my PhD students. So I teach a course on what used to be called critical theory. Now, of course, critical theory is a, is a huge field, but it was um, these kind of classic Texts, Derrida, Foucault, Barthes, you know, Griselda Pollock in the visual arts. And it was about visual theory and subjectivity and signs and semiotics. And it's actually very hard stuff, partly because it's actually very badly written. <laughs> uh, it's very badly written. Foucault, I mean, you mean? great ideas. Yeah, but they, they, they could have, well, Foucault is a better writer, but, you know, Derrida couldn't write to save his soul. <laughs> great thinkers. And also uh, not particularly interested in. Um, making it available to students necessarily, which I think is, I mean, someone would disagree with me and say, how dare you? Because after all, these were delivered as lectures to their students. But anyway, um, so I teach this to my students and I tell them on day one, at some point in the semester, you're going to cry. You're, you're really going to lose it and you're just going to cry and just rip everything to shreds and just hit bottom. And that's okay. That is that's part of learning. Learning isn't easy. Learning is hard. Mm. I mean, if it was easy, then well, come on in. Let's ever let you know everybody gets to be a professor. You it know? makes it's, me think of like a personal yeah. trainer who would yes. who wouldn't tell you that like at the end of doing this max out rep, you're gonna it's just have out. energy to do more. No, it's like your arms no, are gonna, gonna be hurt, tired hurt. and they're gonna, gonna fall to the ground and, and you're gonna sweat. And that's what <laughs> I'm doing to you. Yeah, 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 right. Exactly. It is the equivalent of that. Mm. Uh, and so I tell them that so that they don't think that they've failed. That's not a sign that's of failure. A good point. That's a sign of struggle. That's a sign that you are in it. You know, you are in it. Um, the other thing I do with them 
is I have found that with the, um, so I'm of the generation where we had photocopies, right? We had mimeographs and then we had photocopies <laughs> and then we had printers that could print out multiple versions and then we had cut and paste, right? So this ability to, we were talking about press type earlier, this ability to play with text in these various ways means that fewer and fewer people actually take notes. Mm -hmm. What they do is they take that horrible, stinky yellow pen and they highlight <laughs> the stuff that they think is important. <laughs> and when they highlight, none of that has actually been fed through their bodies, right? They've mm -hmm. seen it, but they haven't actually written it down. Mm -hmm. So I make them handwrite, mm, not because I think handwriting is wonderful, but because there's a body memory that goes into that. And again, I think there's scientific evidence for this. Mm -hmm. At least so I too. tell them there is. Mm -hmm. um, and so I make them handwrite and they can write anything they want to, but I want them to quote, you know, where they think the interesting things are. I want mm -hmm. them to respond and say, I think I might use this in my dissertation because right. it will help me do this. Or, you know, do you hear the author talking to another author who we've already read? You know, mm -hmm. just put it in your notes. And then we talk about the text in class and then they can write more in their notes. The mm -hmm. purpose of the notes is not to test them. The purpose of the notes is for them to have a record yep. of something they thought at a moment in time. And I say, three years from now, so when you're valuable. writing your dissertation, you're gonna mm -hmm. be glad you had these notes. Instead of, why did exactly I highlight true. that? Right, exactly. and also, it, like if it's highlighted, yeah. you have to go through the whole thing. This way you have a kind of, a record. Digest, mm -hmm. a yeah. record, mm -hmm. a summary. They have lost the ability to summarize. Mm, so and true. summarization teaches you to get to the point. So well, I remember when I was do writing my dissertation, I used note cards. And mm -hmm. what the note card did is I had to say, what is this about? I got to fit it on the back of a teeny tiny right, note card. Right, right. Because mm -hmm. I'm not going to remember the names and the dates and this and that. I'm going to remember the big idea. Mm -hmm. And if I need to get back into the nitty gritty, I can do that. I can always do that. Right. Mm -hmm. So teaching them to go from this huge array of particulars, which is what you get when you read 60 pages of text, and to you know, kind of distill it to what mm -hmm. is the big idea here? What's the right. question that this text answers? Right. That's yeah. what I try and teach them. And they, mm -hmm. they, you know, they come up to me afterwards and they say, I'm so glad you taught us how to do that. Sure. I didn't sure. actually know how to take notes. And now I do it all the time. Yeah. It's very old fashioned. I realize that. Mm. But, but I, so critical. I'm not doing it because I believe that the old way is better. I do mm. it because I honestly think you're that, developing a quality of mind. Yeah, mm. right? a quality mm -hmm. of mind. Mm -hmm. yeah, mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I liken it almost to moving and you pack things and you say kitchen. As mm -hmm. opposed to you just put everything in different boxes and you have really? no idea when you move, when you're, um, what is this thing? You, you can say, I think I know what's in this box and if I need to dig into it further, I, I can. Right. Um, but mm -hmm. you, you have contextualized labels to help your brain organize them all. And, you're right. right. And I you know, that true. metaphor of the box is really important because mm. I also tell them that you cannot remember everything. You have to create a box, put the ideas in the box, and then know the box. Right. Mm. So, for example, if I was talking to undergraduates and I'm teaching them, you know, maybe they have to learn 20 monuments. I'm going to test them on 20 monuments. Mm. And I say, you're not going to be able to learn all 20 monuments like that. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. No. What you have to do is learn them in boxes. Mm. What are the five that come from this period? What are the sure. five that come from this dynasty? What are the five that comes from this architect? Right. And learn them in those kinds of groups mm. much easier to retain knowledge when you use boxes with a big magic marker that says kitchen, right? Mm. Or it yeah. says yeah. Mughal 
or mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was I'm also gonna... wondering, on the, on the, in the realm of advice, we've been talking about um, current generations of students mm -hmm. and teaching a subject as old as time, about <laughs> the oldness of time. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wonder what, what you've discovered recently or what you're trying out or what you either discovered maybe a while ago and you still stand by it, that mm -hmm. you would advise other uh, professors, other teachers, other instructors that are in these fields that are teaching history? Well, um, you know, there's probably lots of good advice out there and maybe there, are, I'm sure there are people who would be better at giving it than I am. But I, you know, one thing is, I think it has to be fun, mm. right? I've mm -hmm. said that. Yeah, I, I, that. I really think that they, I mean, when I was a young teacher, I was very uh, kind of tried to be very kind of stern. I, was, <laughs> I wanted control. I wanted to direct the class. And now I've become much more, if it's going in a good direction, go with it. Let the students yeah. take the lead. Mm -hmm. And I don't mind if I'm running after them. You know, that's fine as long as we're all going somewhere. Um, so to have more fun, mm -hmm. to be more flexible. Um, I, some people say, oh, and then just teach less you know, that you don't have to teach as much. I actually don't feel that way. I still want to teach as much as I can, but I want it to be fun enough that they don't notice how much they're learning, mm -hmm. you know? Mm. Um, yeah. I think that what kind of where you started with all this is is the, um, the fostering of the curious and creative mind. Mm. So if you could sort of sum up, um, you know, why, why history? Why be curious? Why, why do these things matter? Um, I think that would mm -hmm. be helpful. Well, it matters a lot to me. I'm a historian. <laughs> of of course, course, I'm you. a historian in a design department where, you know, I think people would say it's not the main event. The main course is the studio. And I get that because they're training to be designers. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, I think what's wonderful about studying history and wonderful about learning about the past is that it's this amazing adventure. And it could have turned out a different way. Sure. And when you realize that, you realize, well, what if they hadn't conquered? Mm. What if they hadn't, what if the plague hadn't come? What if this person hadn't died on the battlefield? You know, what if they hadn't named the woman to be Sultan? Like all these turning points in history. And you, the what if is, is kind of electrifying. The what if. If you, paw, if you don't regard history as this prepackaged thing that comes to us intact, but as the series of critical moments, right. I think it can be really quite thrilling. The what if, I love mm. that. Yeah. Mm. Right. Thanks for taking us on some of that adventure. <laughs> it's been a great journey. Yeah. Pleasure, yeah. thank you so much. Yeah. Enjoyed it. And thanks for listening. I feel energized by Dee Dee's enthusiasm and the fun that she brings to these topics. Um, we've linked to some additional resources in the description and consider emailing the show ttll at illinois.edu. Drop us a note about your teaching and perhaps we'll feature it on a future episode. This podcast was produced by the Center for Innovation and Teaching and Learning at the University of Illinois. Episodes can be found on our website, citl.illinois.edu, and on major podcast platforms. We hope you'll find us there and join the conversation. <laughs>